listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, Friday the 24th of July to Friday the 28th of July. Uh, this week we had many interesting conversations. One of them was with Kashif Bounds from the Western Bulldogs who is uh, was in to talk about Game Changers, Diversity in Football, a new exhibition that's happening at the Immigration Museum. We also talked about when things go wrong in movies and you watch a film and things that you didn't expect to happen happened and it freaks you out a little bit. Uh, we also chatted to Chad Parkiel, the Guardian drinks writer, about uh, International Scotch Whiskey Day, one of my favourite days of the year, and something that may or may not be linked to that. We also talked about me pretending to be a cow. And then we talked about (laughs) screwing up on social media, something that we've all done many times. And then Laurie Zion came in to talk about his new book, The Weather Obsession. Three, triple, R. Hey, uh, last night... um, I was um, my favourite movie. Um, three favourite movies. One of my favourite movies of all time is Rogue, which is about a giant crocodile. Um, that goes rogue. Yeah, it's kind of already. It was you know already rogue. Yeah, it, it's like the how is a crocodile not rogue? Yeah, just a good point. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. tame. Or... Yeah, I don't know how the how the title came up, but it's there. I'd see that though. A crocodile movie called Tame. And it's just about a oh, giant tame crocodile. crocodile. Yeah. Hello. You can ride yeah. on its back. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make that film. Yeah. You can smile at me, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, so, and I realised uh, over the weekend I, I realised that I hadn't seen it in, in a while, like long enough to... Forget bits of it and Ooh, I love to, that. En- to enjoy a rewatch. That is the perfect viewing of something, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. You've forgotten enough to get surprised, but yeah. you know it well enough to just really enjoy to love it. it. Yeah. <sighs> so long as the surprises are good. No, nah, that it's about a giant crocodile. So surprises, <laughs> okay. no bad surprises there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I said to to Kath on on the week, and I was telling her about it, and then I said, "Oh, we should watch it." And and then so and then Sunday night. Uh, we were trying to. There's nothing on TV, and I went, "Oh, hello!" Got up Netflix, and I had it on the big screen. I'm like, "What about this?" And she went, "Oh, yeah, no worries. We'll watch that." And I'm like, "Great!" And then we're about ten minutes in, and she goes, "Is this a scary film? Like, you made <laughs> making me watch a scary film?" And I'm like, "It's it's about a big. There's a big crocodile in it. So yeah, it's a bit scary." <laughs> It's scary. The crocodile. It could be anything other than scary. Yeah, it's, it's going to eat people. That's the. That's sort of what they do. And I'm like, what part of like you know the picture of the giant crocodile? Did you think that? Oh, like what did you think it was going to be? Tame. That's about? what she thought it was going to be. <laughs> In her defence, though, she'd said she didn't see the crocodile, and she wasn't. You know, obviously, I'd I'd, I'd mixed up conversations. I remember telling you guys about it on Friday. Oh, yeah. About certain bits of it. And I thought maybe I'd had that conversation with her. So I thought she was a bit more in oh. tune to what, what it was. Ah. But obviously, she watched it just going, this is not what I expected at all. Did um, she get into it? No, she didn't like it. <laughs> Did you watch the whole thing? Yeah, she watched the whole thing. Um, she was just angry at me for making her watch a scary film. And, um, like, at the start she was like, 
there's a um because there was a, she says just tell me that the dog doesn't die and i'm like i don't remember i don't remember anyway i won't give any spoilers wolf creek was a bit like that for me well that's the other thing someone said to me oh it's funny it's funny horror yep so what's funny horror no. oh my god no no nah. Perhaps don't God. trust that person's recommendations. I know. I also gave me quite an insight into their mind. You think that's What's funny? funny about oh, I don't that. know. But they were like, they were talking about John Jarrett's character, and the whole thing's quite. You know, you can just have a bit of a laugh. What? Yeah, he's the most evil character. I know. Has a bit of a laugh. I know. I know, is, right? Oh. So I remember being in Wolf Creek and going, "What? In, when's the funny bit going to happen?" <laughs> like, I was like, "Is there a punchline <laughs> to the head on a stick?" No. Oh, oh. that's terrifying. That, that oh, traumatized really, me. That particular scene. I'm really scene. sorry you went through that. And that's yes. all right. Well, I had a similar. Not yeah, quite tell as... us your examples. Sorry, of um, you know things that you watched and stuff, and we went. Oh, I wasn't expecting that at all. Just before you go, Jeff, let's put out the text line zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. If you've got any sweet example, I think I might have touched on this um, in previous discussions. But uh, my example of it was last year's um, last year's this year's comedy festival, where we went to see uh, the Richard Gad show, Monkeys, Monkey See, Monkey Do, yeah. which um, had got. I just all I knew about it was that it got great reviews. Everyone was saying this is the must see show. Yeah, I'm thinking it got great reviews. It won the best comedy at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, so I'm thinking, last all right, year. Saturday yeah. night we'll go out and have a few laughs. You know, Saturday night have a few drinks, have a few laughs. We'll go and see this funny show that everyone says is fantastic. Not expecting that it would be a grueling show about sexual assault. Yeah, yeah, that's that, but that's an understandable mistake because. But it's not what you expected a comedy festival, no, probably. it wasn't what you expected at all. And also, it kind of dawned on you slowly. Sort of a bit, maybe it was the same uh, with you watching... No, I suspect it probably wasn't the same as you watching Wolf okay. Creek. But it was kind of like you're in about five minutes into it and you're thinking, this... You know, it's Did not, you laugh? Did people laugh in it at all? Was there Yeah, there were laughs of, in it. There yeah. were laughs in it. it. Just, that wasn't really the yeah. point of it. You know what I mean? It was more like he was kind of using... But if you take the comedy aspect out of it if you just saw that show as like a, a theatre show so to speak like you, you just happened to go and see like a night at the a before, well, yeah, yeah so this is what I was going to say like sometimes you can have this experience where something turns out to be not how you expected it but it's actually not such a bad thing like oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think necessarily I would have seen chosen to go and see that show but when I did go and see it it was kind of pretty interesting okay. you know what I mean I went to uh, the, one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life is Jason Alexander live. So Jason Alexander played George Costanza oh, right. on Seinfeld and my friend was a massive Seinfeld fan and uh, he brought out a show to Australia called An Evening with Jason Alexander in his hair. Uh, it was playing at like the Palms at Crown Yeah, Casino. so I remember this is about maybe six years 2013, ago. yeah. And, and he, I mean, I bought my mate, tickets yeah. we were going together I can't remember whatever we went together I thought this is going to be Jason Alexander doing I didn't even know he was a stand up well apparently not no, I thought he was going to just be doing stand up and he comes out with a wig on his head and the wig isn't a joke the wig is just he explains to the audience that he feels like he deserves to have hair in his life now this, oh. and he doesn't, this isn't like ha 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 it's like genuinely I'm going to wear this wig now so just letting you know I thought I'd call the show and his hair because you'd all make fun of me anyway and then he just did the worst, I don't know, it was the worst two hours of entertainment I've seen in my life. He just started that. He used to do, he used to sing. Yeah, so he did a lot of singing. He sang like, Why do birds suddenly appear? And like, but seriously, at the piano. And he's just going, I didn't expect George Costanza, but I didn't expect this. 
It was terrible. His, was and his stand-up was just... like, how's about... He did tiny bits of stand-up, but it was like, how's about plain food? You know? How, but was there anyone else <laughs> involved in the show? Just no, was just in. On stage for two hours. For two hours. And occasionally he'd walk a, back to the piano and play a song. An and interval? He, no. Then he Q&A? Had, there was a Q&A at the very end he, that he did, and then no one asked him any questions. No one. Wow. No, no one asked him one oh. question. No so, one said, what happened? Oh, did <laughs> So you went thinking that it was going to be like, you know, the funny interactions in Seinfeld, but it was actually more like the Seinfeld bit at the start. Yes. Where, where Jerry does those <laughs> terrible stand-up that's never funny. Um, someone's called through. We can see. Oh, oh no. Oh, oh, no, no, no. The, oh, that's all right. Hey, someone did send us a text. Yes. This is so great. Someone hired Marley and me to cheer to cheer themselves up. Oh, oh no. Yes. Did they not know? They obviously did not know. And then what is that? Why was it in the comedy section of the DVD store? I totally understand. That's a <laughs> that's because some board clerk in the. <laughs> I'll mess with people. Um, someone's calling through now. We'll see if right. they're, they're talking about what we are. Hello, you're on Triple R. Hi, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, we sure can. Why were you ringing? Are you ringing through with something that you saw that wasn't what you expected? Yeah, uh, I used to work in Indonesia, and I caught Malaysia. I caught malaria, and. <gasps> The, the doctor gave me something. She said, it's going to be a long night. Make sure the next day you're going to be able to relax. She said, you're going to have a pretty weird night of nightmares. So I went to a, a, a video shop to find a, a movie, and they've got the, the capital punishment videos, these kind of things like the, the snuff-type movies. So I tried to keep away from them. Yes. And I picked up a movie, and I thought, well, this looks good. And I had a long night of nightmares, and then I woke up, wanted to straighten out and put it on, and it was the Blair Witch Project. <gasps> oh, <No>! my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That is horrifying. Oh, my... I'm surprised you didn't have some kind of breakdown. I had to call home. Oh, Oh, thanks for sharing that one. Oh, my God. Can you imagine being on malaria medication and watching the Blair Witch Project? Wow, that's the worst. trying to recover from the video stores that sell snuff. That's true. (laughs) Hey, we've got a um, thanks to all the um, people that called and sent us a text. This one is uh, so great. So when, um, when I was seven years old, my grandmother took me to see Silence of the Lambs <laughs> on a recommendation from one of my mum's friends. We lasted about eight minutes. I couldn't see the film until I was in my 20s. Could Far you out. imagine seeing Silence of the Lambs when you were seven? They probably thought it was about like lambs. Yeah. <laughs> Frolicking about. It's worse than when like I, a Disney film. When I saw Pretty Woman when I was six. Little lambies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, the lamps come in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the call. Sorry we, we missed a few. There was quite a few afterwards. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Game Changers Diversity in Football is a new exhibition that's running at the Immigration Museum from tomorrow to the 15th of October to talk about the exhibition. We're joined by Kashif Bounds. He's the General Manager at the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation. Very glad to have him joining us for Breakfasters. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, how did this come about? How did a Museum of Immigration end up running um, an exhibition about football? Uh, Look, Jeff, so I used to work um, at the AFL uh, a couple of years ago, uh, leading the National Multicultural Programs. And while in that role, uh, we did a couple of little things with the Immigration Museum. And I really came to admire the work they were doing and how they were using the power of art uh, to bring people together and uh, sharing the story of their settlement in Australia. 
and uh, I just thought how wonderful it would be if we could continue to work with them and and continue to tell the story of all these sports people or, and especially footballers who have come to Australia from other countries and have contributed to our great game. So when the uh, Western Bulldogs won the Premiership last year, which was great, um, <laughs> uh, Jason Johannesson uh, won the Norm Smith medal, which is the best and fairest in the grand final, and he was born in South Africa. Uh, and then Lin Jong, who is another player that we've got and uh, comes from East Timorese um, background and Taiwanese background, he won. Uh, he played for our VFL because unfortunately he was injured. But he, uh, the Bulldogs also won the VFL Premiership and he won the best and fairest in that oh, as well. Oh, wow. So I went to Padmani, who was the Immigration Museum uh, manager, and had a chat with her and said, is there anything we could do to tell a story of these two boys and of the Western Bulldogs in general? So that's how it came about. You moved to Australia 10 years ago. Yeah. How did you first encounter Australian rules football? Oh, look, um, I was a big cricket man coming from Pakistan. Of course. So <laughs> that was the main reason I came to Melbourne because in 1992, Pakistan won their Cricket World Cup at the MCG. So that was the main reason for me to choose Melbourne. But when I landed in Melbourne, everyone I spoke to, they all they talked about was football. <laughs> yep. And no one spoke about cricket. So first I thought they were talking about the round ball. Oh, but, yes. yeah, but then I realized that there is something uniquely Australian, which is Aussie rules. So that's how I was exposed to it. Do you remember the first game you went to? Yeah, the first one I went to was, uh, was Essendon Tigers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Tigers. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was... Um, um, yeah, it was a good game and the Bombers won, which was great. So in your time, I guess, working across the AFL and at the Western Bulldogs, how much has changed in the league's approach to cultural diversity, do you think? Oh, look, I think it's come a very long way. And I think AFL is to be commended because not only they're leaders in Australian sport, I think they're world leaders when it comes to engaging diversity through their sport. Um, the, the multicultural program that AFL has established um, has offices in every every single state and territory who are committed to working with people who are new to the country, new to the game. And also there is a social advocacy piece because this round is the multicultural round and millions of people will be watching the games and they would uh, they would be exposed to the work that AFL is doing in that space. And I think it's a very good social ma- message as well, uh, which um, AFL has had been very strong in promoting a lot of social progressive causes and uh, multiculturalism is definitely one of them. When when you talk to the players who are featured in this exhibition or other players from different backgrounds, what are the issues that they identify as the biggest challenges for their involvement in the game? Look, uh, because our uh, community is so diverse and uh, when you talk about, you know, immigration or migrants with more than 200 countries and they all have their own unique set of challenges. Um, so, for example, with Lin Jong, um, when I spoke with him, a lot of it was around lack of Asian role models playing the game. Mm. And now you look at the Australian demographic and the largest uh, ethnic group in Australia is by far the Chinese community. But you look at um, our playing list at the moment in the AFL and Lin Jong is the only one who comes from that background so that you can't be what you can't see uh, so for him that was the challenge and for for some of the others like Basha Huli from uh, from Richmond it was more around the family was so big on education and sport was not uh, a focus so there is a combination of things. Well Basha Huli from the Tigers has got a, uh, a program that he runs to reach out to um, 
Muslims in Australia and Muslim youth in Australia to help them find a path into football. Are we seeing more of that as well at other clubs? Yeah, look, I think uh, a lot of it comes down to what the players are passionate about. So, for example, we got Jason Johannesson, who is also one of AFL Multicultural Ambassadors, but he's passionate about using social media and using those, those, the digital space to engage with the young people and that's what he works on uh, Magic Door from North Melbourne he spends a lot of time working with the African community and Basha as you said he, he spends a lot of time with the Muslim community so a lot of these players have their own passion projects that they, they like to pursue Do you think too, it's important that we start seeing um, diversity right across AFL particularly in the media as well because I think for a long time the media felt very dominated by kind of like white men who used to play the game yeah how important do you think it is also changing the face of the media that covers the game so look i think it has to be a collective effort so where afl needs to play a role media needs to play a role clubs like the western bulldogs need to play a role and also it needs to happen at the grassroots at community football level but i think media is crucial because again it's about attainable role models Mm. and at the moment a lot of people would say that when they turn on the tally on a Friday night, they see the players who may not represent them. They look at the umpires who may not represent them either. And then they look at the commentators who may not represent them either. So there is no connection for the for, for a new arrival in Australia to feel with the game. It has changed a lot with role models like Basha and Jason and Lynn and Magic Door and Nick Natanui, but we've got a long way to go. What's been the relationship between the struggle for more ethnic diversity in the AFL and the rise of women playing football? I mean, have the same clubs and the same people been push, pushing for both or is it a totally separate issue? Look, uh, I think it is separate, uh, but when you look at the female though, like cultural diversity cuts across uh, both genders as well. So I think there is an opportunity for the AFL or AFLW to start because we've got a new product, which is really exciting, which got a lot of momentum. Sometimes it's harder to fix things in retrospect, which we're probably trying to do with the AFL, but with the AFLW, we clean slide. So it's a good opportunity to ensure that it's inclusive from day one. And I think AFL is very mindful of that. As we certainly at the Bulldogs are very mindful of that as well. Do you, when you talk to your family back in Pakistan, I mean, are they, do they understand anything about AFL? Is yeah, it <laughs> that, uh, that's a very good topic that you raised. <laughs> I, hope, I hope my parents are not listening to this, but uh, look, I came to Australia to study, to be an accountant. And oh, so, no. Yeah. And that's what I trained to be. So, Do they think you're an accountant? Oh, well, look, they know that I'm not and they're not very happy about it. So. Oh, dear. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to get you into <laughs> do, do you think, though, that there is any prospect of AFL spreading internationally? Do you think people in Pakistan might embrace the game? Oh, look, um, um, AFL has an international cup every three years. Now, it's not quite as big as Soccer World Cup or Cricket World Cup, but it's a big deal for the AFL. And we actually have that um, in uh, starting in August, on 6th of August in Melbourne, and there will be teams coming from around 18 countries, and Pakistan will be one of them. And uh, 
that's been a passion project for me on the side which I'm uh, very proud of so there is not a huge following of the game there but there are a lot of international students who came here studied here fell in love with the game and went back so it's gaining a little bit of traction and um, before you go do you think the Bulldogs can make the finals this year 100% never in doubt alright the exhibition is starting tomorrow I know you haven't actually seen it yet but if people if wander down to the Immigration Museum what sort of things are they like to see? Uh, I think uh, uh, what we've done is initially it was a collaboration between the Western Bulldogs and Immigration Museum, but now we've we've expanded to include a piece around diversity in AFL in general. So from the Bulldogs' point of view, we've got the life stories of Lin Jong and Jason Johannesson, who are the two heroes of the exhibition. And uh, and then around that, we also have Ali Blackburn featured, who is uh, one of our uh, AFLW players. Uh, And also we have Tristan Tweedy, who is one of our Indigenous players. So Western Bulldogs are one of the only clubs in Victoria who have all three, who wore all three jumpers this year. So we obviously have an AFLW team. We had that jumper. We wore a specifically designed jumper for the Indigenous round and then we're going to uh, also wear a specifically designed jumper for the multicultural round. So all those three jumpers will be on the display as well. All right. It opens tomorrow, runs to the 15th of October. The exhibition is called Game Changers Diversity in Football. It's on at the Immigration Museum. We've been talking to Kashif Bounds, the General Manager at the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having Thanks. me. You're on Triple R. Three. Triple. It's International Scotch Whiskey Day, everyone. What a great day. And who better to celebrate it with than the Guardian's drink columnist, writer Chad Parkhill. How are you going, Chad? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Lovely to have you here. Yes, indeed. So let's start with the obvious question. What is Scotch whiskey? How does it differ from other whiskies? So all whiskies are distillates of various grain products and Scotch whiskey traditionally um, is a distillate of malted barley, whereas other kinds of whiskey such as American whiskey can be made with things like rye or corn in the case of bourbon or a mixture of various different grains. Uh, Of course, with, you know, um, with current whiskey production, in Scotland, there's also blended whiskies, and those are a mixture of single malt whiskies with grain whiskies, which are that, you know, more of a kind of mixture of different types of grain. So there could be corn in there, there could be rye, there could be wheat, anything along those lines. Is there a purest form of whiskey? So if you're a whiskey snob, is there one of those you don't ever touch and one you definitely do? Oh, absolutely. So I think for most people, there's this idea that uh, single malt whiskies, by which we mean really simply a um, malt whiskey from a single distillery that's been aged for a certain amount of time and conforms with various legal requirements, <laughs> those are seen as the preferable form of whiskey. They have the social cachet, I guess, and they're often the more expensive ones. Um, But that's not necessarily to say that they're actually the better ones. So that's that's a little bit of a contentious topic. But uh, certainly it's possible to have um, blends of various single malt whiskies, and those were traditionally called vatted malts, and I think they're just now called blended malt whiskies. But those uh, can be quite can be quite amazing and often a bit of a steal because mm. they don't have that same social cachet. Exa- examples of a good blended whiskey? 
So I'm, I mean, look, I'm a particular fan. There's one called Monkey Shoulder, yes. um, which is a blend of three separate single Jeez. malt whiskies. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, know. To it. I know it. Yeah. yeah. I always forget which, uh, which exact um, malts are in that one, um, but three separate um, malt whiskies go into that. And it's just a steal um, compared to the constituent parts. Um, and it's, it's very delicious. But uh, similarly, there's a really great company called Compass Box that puts together vatted whiskies, um, really high quality stuff going in. Um, and yeah, they make phenomenal blends that have a kind of levels of complexity that you just can't get with a does single Does the Scotch whisky have to come from Scotland and where does an Irish whisky fit in? So, I mean, legally speaking, yes, Scotch whisky obviously has to come from <laughs> Scotland and they're very protective of that. So there's a whole legal infrastructure, a bit like champagne, how there's a very strong legal infrastructure about what can be called champagne, what you have to do to meet those standards, what grapes you have to grow. Very similarly with Scotch whisky, there's all sorts of standards about not just that it has to be made in Scotland, but also, you know, what kind of still you use, how long you're ageing it for, what kind of casks you aged in, all of that kind of stuff. So lots of lots of legal requirements. So, um, so does climate play much of a role in the production of whiskey like it like it would with different wines? Like does the climate change a whiskey, do you know? Yeah, so that's a, it's an interesting question because I guess with um, with wine you've got this sense of terroir that comes through, but with um, a distilled product you're getting you're getting grain from all over the place and kind of putting it together in this one location where it gets fermented and then distilled. And there's actually quite a kind of raging debate if you're a liquor nerd about whether <laughs> there is such a thing as terroir in spirits, um, which is, you know, an, an interesting question, I think, um, but one that has not yet been resolved, <laughs> I dare say. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's cut to the chase. How do you drink it? I mean, is, is a good... Scotch whiskey just drunk straight on the rocks? Is that the thing? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people like theirs neat, by which we mean, like, absolutely no accompaniment. Uh, traditionally, you'd want to go with a couple of drops of water, so it's always very nice if you're at a bar and you order a whiskey to, you know, if you get it neat, um, a lot of places will give you a little side serve of water that you can just drop a couple of drops in it's not you don't need much but it's just there to Why kind of do you open do that? it up it just opens the whiskey up a bit it lets oh. those aromas come out oh. and oh. You know, makes it also makes it a bit more pleasant to drink which is especially important if you're talking about something like a cask strength whiskey so, so when i used to pour water into the alcohol bottles when i was a teenager at home <laughs> that i stole from my parents i was doing them a favor That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so i'm sure they loved it when they found out i was just opening up your whiskey yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just really helping those aromas <laughs> in the class. <laughs> so I, I've got some friends who love whiskey, and they'll we'll often go out to a whiskey bar, and they'll and I can't drink spirits like that very well because I'm still stuck with my young palate of a you know like co- coke and whiskey or whatever. <laughs> but is there if if there is there a way that I could enjoy whiskey for someone who doesn't have a mature palate? How would you recommend to drink it? Uh, I'd probably start off 
by going for, I mean, it's, it's probably first and foremost about the choice of whiskey. So you don't want to start off with something that's really heavily peated and kind of burly and really intensely flavoured. You probably want something that's a bit smoother. So if you were looking for a single malt scotch, something with a sherry cask finish, which I, I adore sherry cask finish scotches because they're, they're kind of much smoother, much, uh, they're kind of rounded off. Um, and that's because of the ageing process where they've been placed in casks that were formerly used to house sherry. So they take on a bit of the character of the sherry. Okay. Yeah, and it's a bit kind of more mellow. Jeff was asking you whether there's a certain way to drink whiskey. Is putting a mixer in it a total no-no other than water? Yeah, Coke, for instance. Coke, <laughs> for instance. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very loathe on a kind of political level to say there are things that you should and shouldn't do with your drink. Great, you know, I like, like that. You know, if you're, if you're paying for it, you can do whatever you like. With because that. you're like, in, you want to say it, though. In uh, New South Wales, though, they have the their liquor laws prohibit, you know, because they can't have shots. And so you can't get a whiskey neat in a bar in New South Wales. Yeah, really? after a certain time. I think it's like after yeah, 10 o'clock at night. That must, that must That's cause after so night. many problems. Yeah. If you're going to yeah. put something in it, though, what's your choice? Like, soda water, put something maybe? in it. Yeah, soda. Like a scotch and soda is really lovely. Mm. Um, and it, it really all depends on the whiskey you're talking about as well. Like a nice, um, you know, a blended whiskey. So a blend of grain and uh, single malt whiskey. In those cases, there's absolutely no problem with uh, topping it up with a mixer of you know, any kind, yeah. Coke, ginger ale, <laughs> soda. I think it's also best at that time maybe go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about a block of ice? Because friends have said to me before, just put a block of ice in it and then sip away at it. Or is that just no, that's, ruining it? No, that's lovely. That's, oh. that's the way I actually like to drink most whiskeys. Oh. Um, I'm a bit of a on-the-rocks person, which I know for the very kind of purists will kind of mark me as something of a heathen, but I do love I whiskey on the rocks. Really You're a de- devil, de- Chad. <laughs> I know, it's wild. <laughs> it's a prefer- preference to taste, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can we talk more about, like, the difference between, like, what makes the, the whiskey peaty? So the the peaty flavour or the, the kind of smoky flavour for those who... Um, I didn't know what peaty meant, Jess. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah, I, I drink whiskey. Oh, I know. I'm a big fan. So that, that particular flavour, um, which is kind of smoky and a bit iodine comes from the process used to dry out the malted barley when it's in the distillery and that's often done with um, fires that have been fuelled by peat. So... They're burning the peat and the smoke from that kind of comes in and infuses into the grain and that kind of carries through the whole process. So that's where that particular kind of smoky flavour comes from. Now let's move on to whiskey cocktails. Absolutely. (laughs) Sweet, Jeff's been waiting for this moment. I totally have your cocktail last last time. Changed my life. Excellent. Uh, Now, I've I've got some bad news um, in terms of Scotch whiskey because obviously whiskey cocktails, dime a dozen, you know, classics like the Manhattan or the Whiskey Sour, but um, Scotch whiskey is actually really tough to work with in cocktails because it is such a kind of diverse category. So you've got... 
you know, if you've got a recipe that says use use scotch, it's like, well, what kind of scotch are you using? Are you using something really big and peaty like, uh, you know, like a Lafrag or any other kind of Isla malt? Or are you using something that's actually quite light and mellow? So some of the uh, Highland malts, for example, can be quite... You know, space sides, things like that can be quite light and fruity and completely different character. Um, so it's all about various processes and areas and traditions will inform how a Scotch whiskey tastes and they can be quite diverse. So f- I think for that reason and for the fact that it's a pretty idiosyncratic spirit in general, Scotch isn't actually well represented in the world of classic cocktails. Oh. I know, but there are a few. There are a few. Tell us your favourite. Yeah. Look, um, a Rob Roy is a really great way to start, which is essentially a Manhattan made with scotch. So So what's uh, that? So that's just um, scotch whiskey, uh, preferably a good high-quality one, a little bit of sweet vermouth and some bitters, some orange bitters. Served in a martini glass? Absolutely. Stirred. Mm. Served up, <laughs> um, you know. You can and you can you can kind of play around with the ratios uh, to your heart's content. But um, you know, I'd start out with about sixty mils of that uh, whiskey, thirty mils of the vermouth, a little dash of orange bitters. Ooh. Give it a stir. What else? Tell us another one. Um, so <laughs> a little tweak on on that template, and one of my personal favourites. Um, is the Bobby Burns cocktail. So obviously named after the the great uh, Scottish poet um, who was, interestingly enough, um, an excise man. So he was one of the people who was going around collecting tax on the nascent Scotch whisky industry and kind of ruining it for everyone for a while there. Bobby Burns? But, uh, you know, he, he kind of uh, came good by... Right, he wrote very famously that whiskey and freedom gang together. Um, you know, so he, he kind of um, made up for it later in life <laughs> by, by extolling the virtues of uh, Scotch whiskey. But um, he that cocktail is a really... It's a little twist on a Rob Roy, essentially, and you're just adding a little bit of Benedictine to there, just a little bar spoon. What's Benedictine? It's a a French liqueur that's kind of herbaceous. I reckon when you were raiding your parents' liquor cabinet, it was probably Uh, in in my rocket fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Chad Paco. Now, you have a book coming out very soon. Very soon indeed, yes. So the 1st of August. What's it called? Around the World in 80 Cocktails. And the Bobby Burns is, in fact, one of those... uh, cocktails covered in there so if you'd like to learn more about the bobby burns you can uh, pick up the book from the first of april uh around the world in 80 cocktails coming out through hardy grant publishers um yeah and Get available on. in all good bookstores <laughs> and for pre-order right now <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much chad parker it's been a pleasure thank you three triple r you are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Let's talk about um, embarrassing things that happen to us as a result of social media, things that we might say on social media um, or things that we get caught looking at. Uh, this is Social media is just another whole way to be embarrassed. Yeah. Yes, that's what it's for, really. Yes, like all we had to worry about prior to having any kind of online presence was saying something embarrassing to a date mm. or falling over. In front of people. <laughs> that that was about it. It's <laughs> always a problem. Yeah, slipping on a banana. <laughs> Getting a pie in the face. 
the only way you can be publicly humiliated. Uh, so I'll go first. Is go ahead. Once I uh, was uh, catching up with a, an old friend, and um, and we were, you know, just was, oh, let's let's go out for dinner. Let's go and have a catch-up, have dinner. And um, it was someone that I kind of knew. It was like an ex-partner of another friend. Sure. Um, so it was it was a bit kind of, is this a date? But not really. No. But still, I had looked on her Facebook page in case it was a date. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So yes. I had that bit of, it's oh, maybe I'll just... Maybe if she's Perfectly asked me out on a date, I'll just... I yes. should, yeah, are you single? Are yeah. you no, I, this is totally understandable. All of that. Um, so, yeah, did a bit of stalking on her page and then forgot about things that I had seen on her page and then when we were having conversation about something... Oh, no. She brought something <laughs> up, like, and I went, oh, yeah, I saw that. It's <laughs> just like... And then I had to kind of try and cover it by going, oh, yeah, it must have just come up in my feed <laughs> from, three, <laughs> from three years ago. <laughs> it just brought itself up. Wet. So when my brother started dating his current, 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 current partner. Current, Sorry, mm. my God. That's what happens when I don't have my 7 o'clock coffee. Uh, when, <laughs> uh, his current partner, they just started going on a few dates and he, I was like, oh, tell me all about her and... He, he he's like, just look here, look at her on Facebook. I said, I'm going to look her up on Facebook. What's her name? He's like, please don't look her up on Facebook. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, we'll be right. And I looked her up on Facebook and uh, I was looking at photos of hers and I was like, oh, she's really sweet. She looks really cute. Okay. And then I just put my phone down and forgot about it. And the next morning I woke up and I opened up Facebook and it said, um, you have successfully added believe her name about Bob Blair. She knows who she is. You successfully added Blair as a friend on Facebook. And I was like, what do you mean I added her as a friend on Facebook? And somewhere when I'd been flipping through the pictures and looking at her and talking to my brother, I'd accidentally hit add Add friend. friend. And so I was like this crazy sister who added this person he dated a couple of times. She added you. She accepted it. Well, she probably thought, I don't want to say no to the crazy sister. I'll get in her bad books. <laughs> it's like you got a few dates with the brother and the sister says, you're part of the yeah, family. Well, yeah, well, the clan. Welcome in. No pressure, but you're in. You're one of us now. Uh, it was so embarrassing. But then, like, you know, I love her now. Like, we get along very well. But it was just it was just so freaking, it was, oh, I was mortified. Although my brother didn't really seem to care. No. It's, I feel people have got more tolerance for it because it happens to so many yes. of us. I, I always think, like, um, corporate Social media is such a kind of oh. minefield. In, in my um, <laughs> past job, I had um, um, we had a big Twitter account mm. that I used to 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 operate. But you know, I also had my own Twitter account. Oh no! So, <laughs> and your own Twitter account is the whole other sparrow. It is, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, totally. But you're using TweetDeck, right? And you have the two accounts. Oh yes, yeah. So you know, it's very easy for um. Instead of the bland corporate tweet, which is just, you know, you love everyone, everyone's your friends, people should come along to things. Yeah. This the crazy personal tweet. You hate everyone. <laughs> There's Jeff with her <laughs> having a go at... Yeah, yeah, Mark Latham or whatever. Um, so I did that quite a few times. And then I would also... It's also, it's also very easy to do the drunken tweet 
that you might do from your own account, mm. but from the... Oh, um, I did that one. Yeah. Tweeting from the company account. Did you ever get in trouble for it? Did it ever cause a problem or was it just a quick delete? And Yeah, no, it was fine. Um, and I also feel like there's so many other people who have done worse things. Did you ever see um, Rupert Murdoch's Twitter account? When he, oh, no. A few years ago, oh, Murdoch yeah, signed yeah. up. You know, he was like 80 plus or and whatever. He just had, it's almost like he didn't think that what he was typing people would read. And he quickly had like over a million followers and they were insane. Like... I, I read a newspaper account that said that, like, all the staff around him were just trying to get the iPad off him. Oh. <laughs> because, like, after dinner, like, oh. apparently you'd have a few scotches. <laughs> just start tweeting out all his thoughts. He said that one about he how... He said some really mental things. What did he say? Yeah, he said one about, like, how he thought that that um, Malaysian airplane that had disappeared had landed safely in Pakistan. <laughs> What? Yeah, it's really kind of... <laughs> anyway, the very first one of them, very early on, he clearly didn't know how it worked. Mm. So his first tweet was just Andrew Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> like he was trying to, send a, trying to send a message to Andrew Bolt. <laughs> it's like, if you can hear me now, it's like Andrew Bolt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so good. But um, I feel like the list... The listeners will probably have. Um, okay, I feel like everyone has done these. Oh, you message so, us if you've. Uh, what's our message? What's our number? Zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven is our text line. The total classic, and this has actually happened again recently to me, was a friend of mine. But I did this when I was single as well, where you meet someone and then you look at them on Facebook and you scroll back through their photos. And but I, the thing is, I've done this to people I wasn't even interested in romantically. Mm. This when I've become friends with someone, I've been like, oh, I'll just flick through all your old photos, and then you like a photo from two thousand and eight, and you think, oh, there well, we go, they've just got a notification that I've been uh, stalking them for the know, last two years. I don't know whether this is technically possible. I feel like someone should roll out anti-stalker um, software. Software, you know, that you could run over your social media uh-huh. thing that would. Reveal no, all that'd people. be horrifying. No. Do you know We're how many times we all stalkers? Because sometimes I just have a few wines with a friend. And I go, "Can you remember so and so? We went to primary school with. Let's look them up and yeah, you look them yeah, up. Yeah. You, they haven't turned out well. Imagine that, and then everyone would be like, Sarah turned into a bit of a creep.' <laughs> yeah, no, we'd all be guilty of it. I um, someone sent us a uh, text saying keyboards should have in- interlock devices attached to them so you don't post anything while drunk. Which is yes. fair I totally some agree. Yes. Uh, do you know the only times oh. I ever tweet uh, when I'm trying to plug something, like I've got a show on, come to my show, or I'm home alone and I've had a couple of wines. <laughs> That's like, the most dangerous the time because you've got no one to bounce off. <laughs> yeah. I'll just. I'll just get on here and share my thoughts on the world. <laughs> the world needs to know what I think yeah. about this right, right the now. The amount of times I've just texted the words Andrew Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, Friday Funny Bugger was supposed to be up now, but unfortunately Laura is stuck in traffic, which is a bit of a shame, but Uh. we will press on without her. Jeff, Um, you can be our Friday Funny Bugger. I'm always your Friday Funny Bugger. Yeah, Uh, you are. (laughs) Uh, all right, so let's have a bit of a chat. I've been, you know, working the last couple of days. Unexpectedly you were working, were you? Well, not un- yeah, just to me because I <laughs> forgot <laughs> the fact that I actually have a job, another job, and I've got to go and do it sometimes. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, because sometimes I think, oh, should I still do this other job? Like I, you know, I don't really need to. And um, But then there's moments where I just go, Oh yeah, this is why I keep this job. Like, because 
for example, the other day there were two kids pretending um, to be raindrops. No. Yeah. That's oh. awesome. Yeah. How do you how, pretend to be a raindrop? It's blowing my mind. How does this even occur to you? That <laughs> <laughs> there is a fine line so between a children's ima- imagination and being on an acid trip, isn't yeah. there? Like that's so funny. They were just we're all raindrops. Yeah, we're all raindrops. Man. Just scrunched up in a ball out n- near a puddle. So going, we're raindrops. Oh my god! That and is then awesome. and one of them had to go. And they were saying goodbye to the other one. And go see ya. Keep on being a raindrop. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it actually hurts. So my heart. great! It's so great. Here's another one that'll break your heart. So there was a um uh, a tree stump out, you know, on the other side of the oval. And uh, these kids had put were putting like bits of wood and dirt and stuff in the middle of the um, of the tree stump, and they, I, I walked over to them like, "Oh, we love, we just, we love this tree stump so much. We want it to grow again. Oh, we love you, tree stump. Oh, no, love you, tree stump. We just want to kiss you. <laughs> I don't, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl. I just want to kiss you. It's <laughs> like the most trippy children." <laughs> So great. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, it makes me realise how sad my imagination is, like how, like, shut off my imagination yeah, totally. is now. No, totally. You, you sort of lose the ability to just let yourself go like that when you're yeah. a kid and just say, okay, I've got strong feelings about this, <laughs> this yeah. tree stump. I will just express them. You don't, but you don't, even, you don't even think it like that, do no. you? You just suddenly become something else. It's very easy to get back on board with your imagination. Is it? Yeah, yeah. When you when you're in the right environment and you're hanging around, you know, kids. For example, like the kids came up to me the other day, and it was a game that we'd played a, a couple of weeks ago where you know I was a cow and uh, they were the farmers. Love <laughs> <laughs> that you were the cow. Yeah. And then they were and you just, you just go with it. Uh, yeah. Were they dairy farmers or oh, beef farmers? Because <laughs> I'm not sure either of those would be particularly no, good. They just, you know, I don't think they knew what type. But they, so these kids would just come up and grab me by the arm and just go, come on, cow. <laughs> come on, into the paddock with you. And I'd just go along with it and occasionally go, moo, moo. And then it's so funny just watching the dynamics of kids kids play. So you have the one person um, who, you know, runs the whole thing and goes, right, this yes. is what's happening. You're a cow. I'm a farmer. And to the other kids, you're the servant. You're, <laughs> you're the servant? Yeah. Like, where do they even, I don't even know what a servant is. Oh. It's like some who kind knows? of feudal manner. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great. They always get... Uh, so I'm a cat and I get put into the paddock and they go, right, you stay the paddock prison, who knows, right? <laughs> so I get put in there and then inevitably the youngest of the group will be left in charge to, to feed me right. um, and to make sure I don't escape. <laughs> but they... <laughs> so part looking after you, part keeping you in prison. Yeah. So they, you know, <laughs> gather grass to pretend to feed me and while they're doing that, it's when I make my escape. How do you escape? What I you run. Do? Do you- <laughs> Just run. And then and then the leader and the servants and everybody else are like, get her. And that is how I spend my afternoons and that is why I keep the job that I have. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Laurie Zion is a writer, a broadcaster and a professor of journalism. He's also the author of a new book out through MUP called The Weather Obsession and he's joining us in the Breakfasters studio. How are you going, Laurie? Very well, thanks. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, before we get into the book itself, I saw you discussing on social media that you were coming back to Triple R after 30 years. What's your connection with this place? Yeah, well, back in the 80s, um, I one day did a spot on Triple R where I pretended to be a Marxist meteorologist, actually, <laughs> called Klaus Struggle. <laughs> and uh, Klaus would, um, you know, talk about the unequal distribution of rainfall in Australia through... <laughs> 3% of the land got 46% of the rain, all that sort so of stuff. Unfair. So and unfair. So unfair. And so I, before I knew it, it, back in the day, I think it was Chris Hatzitz, uh, Stratos and Sando Chilaro, they sort of nabbed me to come on every week and do, and do the capitalist city forecasts. And so <laughs> this went on for a couple of years. And I, I, was a, I was a postgraduate at the time doing really bad undergraduate humour. But um, the character sort of did last for a while and eventually, unlike me, got a publication up as a book review in a left-of-centre academic magazine called Thesis 11. And it was, though, it was a book review of a fake book that I made up. And it was... I was reviewing a book by someone who'd written about um, how... Karl Marx's um, theory of the unequal distribution of wealth was actually inspired by a little-known stay in Australia in the middle of the 19th century. And it, it got published, so there you go. So long before fake news became fashionable... Uh, that character sort of loomed large as, uh, you know, a, an, an early warning signal for the kind of chaos we've got in the media now, but I had to kill him off after that. Oh, paving the way for Trump. <laughs> I would have thought. <laughs> and also paving the way into a discussion of your new book, The Weather Obsession. It's a book about Australia's obsession with weather, but it begins with your obsession with weather. I feel like you've already started to tell us a little bit about this, but how did you become so interested in the weather? Yeah, actually, so class is not in the book which will be a great relief to anyone who's listening to this. Uh, but really, it's one of my first memories. Um, I, I was, uh, I don't know, four, four or five years old. Uh, and I got up one morning and the whole street was white. And so it was... I and was you compl- weren't living in Mount Buller? No, I was living in Glen Iris. <laughs> and I was completely captivated by it. And um, I kept on saying to my parents, it's been snowing. And they were trying to sort of humour me along and say, it's actually not snow, it's something called hail. And I thought, oh, my goodness, can the sky do that? Um, now, that was the start of it, and I just started to become really obsessed by the weather. And, you know, by the time I was six or seven, I insisted we get, um, you know, all the newspapers every day so I could look at the information there. There was a, a dial service, double one nine six or 6064, one of those numbers, which I'd, you know, ring to check the forecasts. <laughs> so really I was up for anything. my heart. <laughs> yeah. And, and, of course, I thought I was the only person in the world who had this kind of interest. And my mum just didn't know what to do about it at all. So in school holidays, she finally one day said, come on, we're off to the Bureau of Meteorology. We went to <laughs> this building in Spring Street, um, which has long been uh, demolished. Uh, and just she picked up every pamphlet that was there and, you know, all the weather records that have been kind of typed out. And they were photocopied, which was quite a big uh, job in those those days and I then memorised everything. I could tell you what um, the average maximum minimum was for every capital city for every month of the year and how much rain they got by the time I was about eight. How did you go on to become a journalist and not a meteorologist? Um, I was terrible at science subjects and I was really interested in music as well. Like my obsession seemed to 
to move around a bit, fortunately, when I was younger. But it's it's kind of it's been really interesting researching this book because you know I grew up thinking I'm the only person in the world like this on on a kind of weather spectrum, I guess. And uh, <laughs> and then you know one of the things I guess that's uh, changed in the media, you know, if you look at the whole rise of hobbies and and uh, you know chat groups relating to um, very specific interests, uh, that's how a lot of the people who are now becoming meteorologists actually start out they're obsessed by the weather they find chat rooms weather zone or uh, social media or set up their own facebook weather pages and they're off and running so this whole kind of community is something that's out there and is quite easy to find now but um back in back in the day it just wasn't there at all (laughs) okay so why is that i mean you say at one point in the book that in 2017 weather outstripped outstripped sex as a google search term by four to one which seems astonishing to me i'm each to their own, I suppose. But, <laughs> but, but why, why, does, why does the weather mean so much to us and, at and, a time when most people are living their days inside? Uh, yeah, well, I think that um, it's not the same in every country. And I, I suspect that, look, you know, that I found that a fun fact, if you like, when I went through and did all this. But I guess that... Um, you know, the way we search for sex online has really changed a lot. We don't necessarily go via Just type Google in anymore. Well, I don't know <laughs> if we do it via Google. Anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not up to date. But, um, and then I thought it'd be great to see how many people are looking for both uh, sex and weather via Google. <laughs> <laughs> I got nowhere with that. Oh, right. so, um, it's like intersection of interests. <laughs> you know, sultry character. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that the, the thing is that um, one of the trends, and I, I guess the whole book is really trying to look at change in the media in the last 25 years through the, the story of weather in the media, and underpinning that is that forecasting, uh, also due to really substantial changes in technology over time has become a lot more accurate there's a lot more weather media there and um so i think that what's what that's done is it's kind of opened up this world in a way that um it you know it used to be you could get the forecast in the papers listen to radio and tv and dial that uh, footage <laughs> number but now you know since the bureau launched its website which i sort of see as a watershed moment in 1996 the bureau of meteorology that um it became the bureau I think, as well as becoming um, a much improved weather forecaster, uh, also became a media organisation by doing that. Because I, I guess if you take away all the rest of the media and the Bureau's still pumping out everything on its website, we'd still know kind of more or less uh, what we know about the weather, but perhaps without all the bells and whistles we get on sites like Weather Zone and different apps. But it's actually... Uh, I think that reflects a big change in the media in general where uh, big media organisations are not necessarily big news organisations and news organisations are kind of... Uh, have been responding to this by trying to turn weather into news because um, I guess the story of, of weather over time is in the media is it's a story of constantly unmet demand. Whenever a new service relating to weather information has been set up, whether it's through the telegraphs being set up in the 1870s and 80s or uh, the you know, the four-digit dial number or or websites or whatever, people have just gravitated towards it. So I think that... Uh I think that's, you know, in a way why it's called the weather session because uh, it doesn't matter how much media there is about weather, we want to find out more. Yeah, well, I always think about talking about weather is like the most boring 
thing you can say to someone, you know. In it, but it's all—it's also everything we fall on. As soon as a guest comes in here, we usually go, oh, is it cold outside? Is it sunny outside? Yeah. And I think, oh, how boring is it that we always revert to the weather? But you make the point in the book that it's not actually a bad thing that we're constantly talking no. about the weather with strangers. I, I, I quote an old uni friend of mine, Greg Murray, who's now a professor of psychology, and um, he's done this whole... Um, a whole lot of research on this thing called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, which is, you know, do people get depressed during winter? And um, But I, I was asking him, I had a conversation with him about uh, what do you make of the fact that a lot of weather talk just seems so ritualised? And, and he said he thinks it's a really healthy thing because weather links back to who we are and how we experience the world. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's been the mystery for me all the way through it, you know, why? And there's been so little actual research done into the specific uh, reasons why we're so interested in the weather. I guess because until 40 years ago when we could all go inside into air-conditioned offices and homes, uh, it was obvious that the weather affected what we did every day, no matter what we were doing. Uh, Back in the day when you were a kid, the weather could seem like an innocent hobby for um, a child. Today, of course, any discussion about the weather is always politicised because we have this whole climate change phenomenon hanging over our head. What do you make of the gulf between the massive interest in weather that you describe and the seeming, um, I wouldn't say indifference about climate change, but certainly our inability to do anything about it. How do those two things relate? Um, There's there's an American uh, author, and she's a meteorologist as well, Heidi Cullen, who wrote about this, and she said we tend to view weather and climate separately, uh, and there are a whole lot of reasons why. It's not just uh, because we're ideologically imprisoned in some, you know, uh, denialist um, uh, trope, but... um, uh, you know, we're not really used to looking at them together. I guess that the really interesting trend that's come about really through this whole was that climate change question whenever extreme weather strikes is that um, a lot of climate researchers have gone and started to look at uh, what they call attribution studies or attribution science. So there's, you know, I've just been in Europe where there's, um, you know, record-breaking heat wave in a number of European countries this summer and I looked at this website in the States that it actually attribution website and they're saying yes climate change as you would expect is part of uh is part of that um uh the severity of that heat wave um it's an interesting sort of thing for the media because a few people who've worked in this area said to me that um you know this is kind of this this kind of attribution study uh or or discussion about attribution has been driven a lot by the media's demand to know but there are people who say it's more helpful just to try to actually say well these kind of conditions are what you'd normally expect with climate change and not to try to say 0.7 of this um, uh, two degree uh, above average this year is due specifically to uh, climate change. But um, there is an interesting sort of precursor to all of this in Australia uh, when we look at weather and climate, and that's El Nino. And I think that um, Australians have been used for a long time now, um, certainly since uh, after the really big um, uh, uh, Ash Wednesday fires and and various droughts. We are used to the idea now in Australia, and we're affected by it quite clearly, that that uh, southern oscillation index uh, where we go from El Nino to La Nina, we, see, we understand that's a driver of the climate. It's not necessarily a driver of climate change, but mm. we understand that there's likely... It's, you're more likely to get a really dry year when the El Nino is active. And I think what's starting to happen now is that more and more of the science around climate change is starting to say, well, look at 
what, you know, what all the, um, uh, you know, look at global warming in the same way, really. So the, yeah. the book is entitled The Weather Obsession. It's out through MEP. We've been talking to its author, Laurie Zion. We might have to get Klaus back at some stage, but thank you so much <laughs> for coming in. Thanks so much. You're, You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.